Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to another episode of Trundle Bed Tales Radio. This is your host, Sarah Utah, and we're here tonight for episode 21, where we're going to be talking to Julie Williams about Carrie Ingalls, and I think it's really going to be a good episode, so I'm so glad that you joined in. But first, we've got just a little housekeeping. And what we've got going on in the upcoming episodes is Friday, this very Friday, we're going to be doing episode 22, Laura Ingalls Wilder Celebrates Thanksgiving. It's going to be at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Central Time, 9 a.m. Mountain Time, and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. I hope people have recovered from the Black Friday by then. And if you are out and about, you can always call in either to talk or to just uh, listen at either 714-242-5253. That's 714-242-5253. Or toll free, 1-877-633-9389. That's one eight seven seven six three three nine three eight nine. And in that episode, we're going to be doing a half hour. Uh, we're going to be talking about some of the ways that Laura specifically celebrated Thanksgiving, um, how she you know talked about it, some of her instances from her earlier writing in the Missouri Ruralist talking about Thanksgiving. And then we're going to talk a little bit, depending on how much time we have, about how some of those traditions that she had and talks about uh, are carried on today and how some have developed up since then. And I think it's really going to be an interesting episode, so I hope you tune in for that. And if you can't catch it live, as always, you can always either stream it on the website later or you can download it for free from iTunes. And there's a list on the radio show website. There's a link on the radio show page on both the blog and the website. So if you're interested uh, in listening to our show episode later, feel free to do that. And uh, our monthly update is probably going to be a little early for December, too, because most of the things going on in December are going to be that first weekend. There are actually... Uh, three different Laura sites that are going to be doing Christmas events. So we're going to make sure that we try and get the word out before that happens rather than after. And be sure to look uh, fairly soon for a post that's going to be about doing your Christmas shopping at the home sites. I've got all the information now, so I just have to get the post written up. And uh, that'll give you an idea of what they have available and when the cutoff dates are going to be. And if you haven't stopped by the Trendle Dead Tales 
YouTube page lately. I encourage you to do that because we just put up another Christmas-themed video that is actually looking at bubble lights. And I was kind of using a little bit different technique and playing around with the camera a little bit. So I hope that you enjoy that. And I think that's about all of the housekeeping that we have. So let's go ahead and bring Julie back on, and let's give a warm welcome to Julie Williams. Hello, Julie. Hi, Sarah. So I'm so glad that you could come on tonight. I always tell people that you know more about Carrie, especially early Carrie, than just about anybody else. So I'm really excited to have you on the show, and I hope you enjoy it. Well, thank you. I'm so flattered that you think so much of my uh, work. Well, uh, why don't you just first off uh, introduce yourself and tell uh, our audience a little bit about who you are. Yes, um, well, my name is Julie Williams, and I live in Birmingham, Alabama. And I Okay, Julie, I'm going to interrupt you just a second. Could you speak up a little bit? Apparently, okay, sure. my official listener is saying that they're having a little trouble hearing you. All right, is this better? She's not at her post. She's got to go back okay. and see. But, but I think so. It's a little louder anyway. Okay. All right. Well, my name is Julie Williams, and I live in Birmingham, Alabama. And I am a media historian, and that's how I became interested in Carrie, uh, in that she, is a, uh, a, she was a frontier press woman. I teach part-time at Samford University in Birmingham, teach some journalism, and teach some English. I teach some media history when I get to, and that's my favorite part. And um, I've just always loved Laura Ingalls Wilder for many years and all of the Ingalls, apparently. Well, that's always good. I think they're very lovable. And our official program listener says, thumbs up, you're doing great now. Oh, that's great. (laughs) So why don't you kind of expand a little bit about how you got interested in Carrie? Yes, well, you know, when I was, uh, oh, probably in high school, the Donald Zucker biography of Laura came out and I read it faithfully. And I remember noting, you know, making a mental note that Carrie was a, a newspaper woman, you know, and never thought much more about it. And then I was I had a career as a newspaper woman myself. And then I went back and got my master's degree, and I took a class in media history. And at some point we studied the frontier press, and we learned that the frontier press, um, the archetypal frontier press person, moved from town to town to town, starting newspapers, being really uh, a booster of the town, and then um, and then moving on to another town as that as a new town beckoned or as the old town folded, and suddenly something swirled back into my thought. Isn't that what Carrie did? So I had to go dig out that old book, now many years old, in my mother's closet and found it. And found some hints that that is indeed what she had done, and so I was really excited and at that point made it my goal to someday find out more about it. I tried a little bit at the time, but there was no Internet at the time, and I and this ultimately depended on some Internet sources for me to figure out about Carrie's career. So when finally, um, you know, after some years passed, I thought, I've got to look up Carrie again. And, for, and by then I was uh, on the Internet and I was able to find what I needed. Well, I just think uh, it's it's so interesting because you do seem to come at this as a fellow newspaper woman, and I think that is uh, 
sort of what gives you a lot more insight because I think it's easier to understand somebody if you've at least partially walked a while in their shoes. And That's and, true. And I think that really kind of gives you a little bit of um, insight on it that, that a lot of the rest of us don't have. And I'm so glad that you're taking an interest in Carrie because uh, I think a lot of times the sisters get over Um, you know, she was born there. So, um, what is your work on Carrie centered on? Mostly, has well, entirely centered really on her as a frontier press woman, and really as you know, if if there was a textbook written now about the frontier press, I think Carrie would be such an archetype that she should be front and center in it. I mean, there are many frontier press people who are very, very well-known and more well-known than Carrie, but she is so perfectly embodies uh, the, the the generally accepted pattern of frontier press people that I think that that's, a, that's what I've centered on and I've uh, looked at her really as the, you know, as sort of an embodiment of the frontier press. Well, I think that definitely sounds like a book you ought to write. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> uh, in the books, Carrie is often described as being kind of in ill health. Did you find any reflection of that in her real life? Well, you know, I take the books to be fairly true. I know there's arguments over that, you know, the tweaking, but I don't know why Carrie would have been portrayed as well, having difficulties getting through the long winter and so on if she didn't. You know, I think that's probably a pretty basic thing, so I assumed so. But then I recognized that she was in a very busy and demanding career that required a lot of close work with her eyes and fingers and a lot of heavy lifting and so on, so that that seemed to uh, go against that. I did find um, through some of uh, William Anderson's work that she had um, at various times gone further west, and we're going, well, no, maybe different parts of the west might be a better way to put it, um, Colorado and Wyoming, they're all very west to us in Alabama. Anyway, uh, she had gone there to um get um, some relief from sinus issues and asthma. But she returned to South Dakota and, um, you know, I I seem to have thrived and have, you know, a a sturdy life and doing doing somewhat heavy work. So my impression was that she probably had some issues as a child and probably had some sinus issues and whatnot, but that she was pretty much a pretty sturdy and solid worker and reliable, you know, uh, not – didn't miss a lot of work for health, probably, just because she had such a busy career. And I think it it wasn't like you could exactly call in sick to a Frontier newspaper. You had to get things. Your deadline was coming once a week, and I don't think there was anybody else to do it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, there was nobody else. <laughs> so... Did Carrie set out to be a newspaper woman? Do you think she was sitting there writing on the buckboard with angles going, I'm going to write newspapers someday? <laughs> I don't think she did. I know she studied briefly to be a teacher and apparently was a teacher and a substitute teacher briefly, but apparently didn't want to do that. Well, I mean, maybe she enjoyed it, but she fell into newspaper work pretty quickly, and that seemed to suit her in that even though she dabbled in other jobs, 
as they all seem to in that era. It seems a common thing to not, you know, be stuck in one job forever. But she always came back to newspapers, apparently because she had some skill. And I, I know she went into the DSMET uh, leader to learn to set type. It was something she had to be sort of apprenticed into, and um, you know, which would be true for anybody. And she probably discovered she had a talent for it. I know women were often recruited throughout history to set type because they had smaller fingers and could work quickly with these, you know, small bits that were the letters <laughs> that were set into the type and uh, were considered to be, you know, manually more dexterous at small work like that. So that she probably discovered quickly that she had a talent. And also I feel that there weren't that many careers open to women in these very small towns out in the West, um, out in the prairie. They, you know, there was seamstress work and teaching work and, and, you know, being a mother, that kind of thing. But newspapering was one that was open to women, and whereas some of the, you know, other careers were pretty much um, – Oh, more gender, um, uh, gender focused. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So let's just talk a little bit about what newspapers were were like back then. If somebody had a copy of the Dissent Leader, uh, say, what, um, how, how about how big it would it be? How many pages? What kind of news articles would it have? Oh gosh, you know they kind of varied. As with modern newspapers, it would vary by how many advertisements you had. But frequently, for these small papers, they came out once a week, and they often would have the front and the back printed with local news. You know, maybe local news, local advertisements, and then the interior, uh, maybe the page two and page three, if it was a four-page paper, page two and page three would be pre-print um, news that they that the editor bought from a service that might have national news and interesting features and all. And some of them, of course, were larger. I don't um, have a clear picture of of most of Carrie's because very few of her papers actually survive. And and some of them that were saved in general, my feeling is some of the ones that, that people saved were the more flashy issues like, um, one from the, um, I believe, the Arlington Sun newspaper that she worked at. I, I think this was the one where she, um, during the time she worked there, they, they announced that South Dakota had become a state and they were printing, oh, you know, legalistic forms that you could buy now that we were a state. And somebody saved that. And that's why we have record of it. Well, that would have probably been a special issue. So, you know, it might have been bigger than most. But it was not uncommon to have a very small newspaper that was, you know, really just a few pages of local news, maybe even two, and then then a couple pages of, you know, non-local news. It's so funny you say that because we always run into that trouble with clothing history, that what people save are the things that are special occasion clothes. You so, are so right. <laughs> so there's like a zillion uh, uh, christening gowns and wedding dresses because for the most part, people wouldn't wear those out. And it's really, if you can find a good, really period work clothes from, like, say, the late 19th century and back, those are the ones that are really worth something now because they're the ones that didn't get saved. They got used up, worn out, turned to rags, turned to patches, and moved on. 
So it's funny that the newspapers are also like that, that it's the special ones that save. And, and these small-town papers people often didn't think were worth saving in an archive so that they may have four or five issues that somebody bound together, usually a housewife would sew them together, and they would you know, maybe donate them ultimately to a library. Where the big newspapers in New York were often saved as a matter of routine or large city stuff, but I was told by uh, several Laura Ingalls Wilder researchers, you will never find Carrie's newspapers. Well, that's just a challenge to me. But, yeah, they were hard to find, mm-hmm. what few I found. And because they were just seldom saved, people didn't think of them as significant. I I wish they had. <laughs> but a few so, were saved. So we should, as Laura researchers, we should be very uh, glad that we have as much as we do of the Dismet News. I mean, we don't have it right from the beginning, but uh, there's a fairly complete run. And that's great. That is a real good thing. So... I guess we need to be grateful for that. And and while we're talking about what the newspapers are like, one of the reasons why I wanted to mention that is because I, I personally think it's kind of funny because our local paper seems to be going more and more back into that, which I don't know if that's necessarily the way to go, but less local news, more prepaid national stuff, uh, smaller size. I think they may be getting back down to four pages of four small. Maybe so, dear. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I think... Yeah, because I think it really, maybe they're kind of going back to to some of the earlier model. So um, what was Carrie's job like working at the newspaper that you found? Gosh, she had a lot of jobs, and they were all what we would think of starting out as the manual labor part. Now, I, I should go back and say that in the beginning, back in the colonial era, you know, Ben Franklin... Um, the printer and the editor kind of did the same thing. You know, they were all one big, you know, one person did a lot. By Carrie's time, the the editor had separated from the printer, and at first she was in the printer line. She was learning to set type, which she did do. She did write some news tidbits, which she set into type, and she did a lot of job printing. You know, people came in and wanted business cards or like Laura had or stationery or something like that. And she was noted for being a good um, um, compositor to set ads in type, to use the fancy fonts, and she was quite noted for that. One of her bosses commended her for that. And then um, she later, in another newspaper, became the print shop foreman and was good at job printing and binding. She did a lot of book binding kind of work, you know, for people. Hmm. And then eventually um, she... I. Uh, became the manager of newspapers and I believe established one newspaper. And apparently because she was a manager in these small town papers with only 16 people in the town, she was probably doing it all. She was editing and writing and running the, the you know, type, setting the type and so on. And so by that, she sort of, she got a new boss and a new situation. She seemed to be put in charge to do it all, which was not uncommon in the small frontier papers where one person or two people would do the whole thing themselves. So let's uh, back up just a little bit because one of the things that, that I used to do when I worked at Escher's Ferry was that I got to do the an interpretation of the print shop. So so I think I got a fairly clear idea of what some of these things are, but can you explain a little bit more about what you mean by setting type? I think that's um, a phrase that a lot of people hear a lot, but maybe don't really understand what all that entails. Yes, and over time it becomes easier, just like today we 
uh, type a newspaper onto the computer screen, and that's essentially putting the type and the form that we need it. But going back as far as Benjamin Franklin, you know, they actually slid individual letters into oh, what was called a composing stick. But at various times it was a whole page. Sometimes it was a, a sort of a, a, a device that was kind of like a one line of type that they would be able to, to stick into the form and in, in various ways, making it easy. Sometimes it was harder. Sometimes it was easier. And then as time went on, they developed the linotype machine, which was something that set an individual line every time, and it was a hot lead that melted into a form. I, you know, I can't even imagine how it would work now, but it was a real popular thing. And um, mm-hmm. probably in the Frontier Papers, Carrie was still doing it more the Benjamin Franklin way. Now, we have one notation that she was melting lead into type, which kind of sounds like a primitive linotype, but I would have been surprised if she had one in these very small papers. I may be surprised, though. I, I just I couldn't mm-hmm. put my finger on it. But probably she slid the type into a form, and you know you had to put spaces between the words, and if you ran out of spacers, you know, you just made your own with a snipped up tin can, you know, that sort of thing, or with mm-hmm. a matchstick. You they they did what they could to make the words come out right. Interestingly, one of the papers she was associated with before her time, I, I couldn't ever see it from her time, but they their comment was it was a exceedingly correctly printed paper and it did look very nice. It was, when you saw it on microfilm you thought, Wow, this really does look nice so, you know, some of them had better types and well-trained staff who wanted to look pretty, and others kind of threw it together as they went. So, in the composing stick, so people are looking at these trays and trays of individual letters. Right. And you you had to go through and pull out the letters, which were all backwards, of course, so that they would print properly. Right. Put them in, spelling out the word, putting in the little pieces of, of kerning space it all backwards and print right. it and have it right. And um, I, I don't know if this is uh, really where it came from or not, but they always say that the P's and Q's came from those trays. Mining your P's and Q's. Q's because I would imagine. They're very hard to tell apart backwards. And it's just really an incredible thing to see somebody doing this in setting type. It really is a major job. And then at the end of the day, after you've printed everything, you get to take, kind of wash it off and put it back so right. all the letters are in the right spaces for the next know, day. They used to say that some women were so quick at case. They, if you see the term at case in old writings, they meant as printers that they were taking types out of the case, and they were so fast. They could just flip through and get the E, the A, and whatever they needed. And, you know, it was amazing because it's kind of like touch typing to us, which, you know, when my young son looks at me typing fast and says, wow, you know, and I'm thinking, oh, it's mm-hmm. so easy. But, you know, it, it took me a while to learn it. Well, imagine having to do it physically. But, again, to us it's like, wow. But after a while, these women who were usually – men did it too, but women were often picked for those jobs. And, Wow, they were so fast, and people just were kind of in awe, you know, and their slender fingers flew, you know. And uh, you can, one can imagine somebody like Carrie, who was quite good at it, you know, flying through it and thinking nothing of it. And yet today it's a lost art. Yes. Well, I think it takes practice as much as anything else. And and I'm sure that's why they like the linen type machines, because you didn't have to put them away afterwards. You just remelted the Right, and that would be nice. <laughs> 
So um, did did you think, uh, what kind of, like, presses would they have in these buildings uh, when you went into, like, for the newspaper? Would it be like a treadle press? Well, I'm going to hope you're going to tell me about treadle <laughs> presses because I don't know. I know that um, there was a very small portable press that had a hollow iron legs in hollow parts that were made of iron. They looked very heavy, but they were easily unbolted and easily reassembled so that you can move from town to town. And they're pretty small. You see them now, you think, wow, that's pretty small. But they could print, you know, a page and it would, you know, could be operated by one person with one hand if they were strong enough. And they usually were strong enough, but sometimes two people would make it quicker. And those were very inexpensive as things went and very portable. But I am very anxious to know about the treadle presses. You had mentioned them to me, and I don't know anything about them. So you tell me. Okay, well, this is the ones we had. The ones we had at Usher's Ferry, the Usher's Ferry was dated 1890-1910, but I've seen them at a couple other places, and I just really love treadle things because I love treadle sewing machines. Uh-huh. And this is kind of operates on the same principle. There is a treadle uh, pad at the bottom, and you work that with your foot. And there's a wheel on the side that's your counterweight, and... At the top, there are two big rollers and an ink pad. And what you do is you ink the pad, and the rollers go over that, get the ink on it, and then they come forward and roll over the uh, thing that you're printing, the the text or, and right. the setup page, and then that comes forward and presses into a piece of paper. And by the time I've explained that, if you have the treadle going well, they could do probably, um, oh, I bet you could have gotten at least 10 done in the amount of time it took me to say that. And what you did while you were working the, the press with your foot, at one point the paper comes up and you have to take out the printed paper and put in a new piece of paper. But the bad thing about them is... It was almost for a way as if it was on an an engine or powered or anything because with the counterweight going, it wouldn't stop for you if you missed. Mm. So you had to be very careful about when you put your hands in to switch the paper because if you did it wrong, you could very easily get your fingers mashed pretty badly. (laughs) But we uh, would have that going at Estrasbury and... um, I didn't get to do it with ink very often, but I always got to show them then how that worked, and just I loved that thing. But what you're describing is probably a lot more portable because this is kind of a heavier machine because it, you know, it did have the counterweight. Um, so that's what I always kind of pictured Carrie using because that's what mm-hmm. I was used to. But what you're describing is more of a they would be pulling like a lever to 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 do that action of pressing the paper to and, the and I think it was a little better levered I, I you know I, I'm a colonial papers person first and that was my first love and so I mm-hmm. always pictured this heavy lever heavy press literally something you but I do know that by the time of around the turn of the century when Carrie was beginning her work they actually had oh, oh maybe geared it up so that the pressing of the lever was not quite so hard. You know, I know that it was a, a pullover thing, but it had, a, as you suggested, a roller in there somehow that kind of met you halfway. I know that there were some um, husband and wife teams who ran them, and my impression was they often ran the press together 
sometimes I, I took it because it was an awkward machine to run or heavy, you know, for a woman maybe, uh, and that may have just been that particular woman. But, you know, I think it was a little easier than I always picture from the colonial era when you really had to use a lot of muscle. I think it was a lot less muscle required by um, by the nineteen early 1900s. Um, so you'd mentioned earlier that Carrie was had done some writing. Do we have anything that she wrote that she actually signed so we can point to that and say, yes, she definitely wrote this? No, I couldn't find a thing. Now, I found her mentioned three times in the papers, which is interesting. And what she did was talked about, and that was kind of nifty. Uh, but I could never find anything that we knew she wrote. Now, there was a, a tidbit of her of a neighbor of hers that was ill. Probably she would have written that. She probably knew it. But, you know, that was a guess. I just happened to know he was her neighbor. Uh, but really, um, the only things we have for sure is we know she worked at places, and we know that um, her boss wrote about her. I can quote those. One of them um, was editor H.M. Keene of the Arlington Sun said that Miss Carrie Ingalls of DeSmet has taken a place in the Sun office. Miss Ingalls has recently approved up on a piece of land not far from Cottonwood and refuses to sell it, believing that she will double her money in the investment within a year or two. <laughs> and that was, I thought that was a, a interesting glimpse. And then later when she left just a few months later he commented in the paper miss carrie ingles who has been acting as foreman in the sun shop severed her connection with this office and left it monday for her home in desmet miss ingles is an efficient woman at ad and job printing and bindery work and it is with great regret that this office loses her services and i thought that was a nice you know glitz he was really saw fit to talk about her upon her leaving so yes, that that's fun. And and it, bindery was really a book binding was really kind of a big thing. A lot of women did that in the late nineteenth century. So yeah. it's interesting that she was involved in that too. Yeah, and and obviously for commercial hire at that point, you know, people mm-hmm. were binding things into books. Probably you know, city directories and stuff were popular even for small towns in that era. And I wouldn't wonder, but there was some local um, bindery work on that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So. Um, but uh, I was going to say that, but her not having signed anything wasn't really unusual because it seems oh, like yeah. a lot of these things just weren't signed in there. They weren't um, today, at least as as it's sort of commonly depicted in the media, people are always looking for a byline, but that doesn't seem to have been as big an issue in this kind of paper. Yes, that's definitely true. The byline really started coming about at the end, well, in the Civil War near the end, but it didn't become popular until, you know, many years later, and then not universal until many, many years later. And almost nothing in the um, newspapers that I found of Carrie's was signed, except for occasionally the editor would have a comment. You could tell the editor was writing, or he gave himself, you know, he gave himself a credit. But very, very uncommon for anybody to have a byline in this time so that, you know, you look at anything and you just get used to it from that era. You never know who actually wrote it. The only one I had a good guess at was the fact that her neighbor once having written, somebody wrote up about the neighbor being ill, and I suspected she wrote it, (laughs) just because she would have known. So, um, now, trust me out there, listeners, because this is going to sound like where am I going suddenly into left field, but trust me, I'm going somewhere. Uh, 
so you had mentioned Carrie proving up some land, which I assume is her homestead that was was near Philip. Um, and one of the things to prove up, you had to do a final proof and uh, for a homestead. And do you want to explain what that is? Yes, uh, the the settlers had to. Uh, I'll talk about it from the the advertising angle, which is what I know best. Um, after a certain number of years, and I know it varied depending on the time frame, but maybe after say five years or or seven years, depending on what time frame and where you were, you could lay claim to that land by putting an ad in the newspaper at a pretty expensive rate, which was like five dollars, which in that era was quite substantial. And you had to advertise it for a certain number of weeks saying, I have proved up on this land or I have this land that I have lived on and met all the requirements for for this number of of, we, of years. And anybody who read that ad who disagreed could then file a another ad <laughs> contesting it and saying, no, I disagree. I suppose, you know, usually most people were above board and honest and had actually done so, but they had to run these ads in the newspaper at a substantial rate of pay for a certain number of weeks. And then when that time elapsed and they had been no contest to their, nobody contested their claim, then they had been considered to have actually fulfilled the requirement and the land was now theirs. Okay. So who was E.L., and I'm going to probably mispronounce this name, E.L. Sen? E.L. Sen, uh-huh. And just for your listeners, that's spelled S-E-N-N. But he himself made plays on the fact that it sounded like sin, like, you know, something bad you shouldn't do. <laughs> um, and the word syndicate, he often misspelled it to match his name. But E.L. <laughs> sin was Carrie's uh, boss in the second half of her career where she really became devoted to newspapering, I think, uh, committed to it. And he was a very colorful tycoon of the Prairie Press, who followed the railroads out as they built farther and farther out and would establish railroads, I mean establish railroads, establish newspapers where little railroad towns cropped up and where people were proving up or were trying to prove up on land because people would follow the railroad, get homesteads within, say, 20 miles of any railroad station, and he would you know, know that those people had to file these expensive advertisements that had to run a certain number of weeks and he could have a little newspaper in that area for the specific purpose of receiving these ads and that would fund the newspaper and then ultimately when all the land in that area was proved up the ads would start drying up and so he would just fold that newspaper and move on and uh, or have his staff do it and Carrie was one of his staff so that he was known as the final proof king of South Dakota because he was um always had his newspapers following this final proof trail to fund their existence well and sometimes he'd like uh, combine newspapers then after they kind of tapped this out and there'd be yep. suddenly one newspaper covering three towns which had all had their own newspaper exactly. before. Exactly, uh, yep. And then if they if they indeed dried up, then he would close them down and move on as well. And you know, he got a lot of criticism for this in his day and from historians saying all he cared about was the bottom line. But when you read his papers, and there are some and that Kerry uh, worked on, they read like the ones in the established towns. They talk about local gossip, who's establishing a store, who's had a baby, somebody got a car, you know, and local interest in some of this stuff was very useful to people who are otherwise very isolated 
out in a frontier existence. You know, there's going to be a dance at this store. Please bring an instrument if you play it. Um, you know, so-and-so is setting up a, a pile of lumber to make a store at this crossroads, you know, so that people would know that they could go there. Um, so, you know, it really was helping bind together um, these newcomers who were probably kind of lonesome and so that they would know where other people were and what, what things were going on. Oh, a preacher was going to preach about Abraham Lincoln and they were going to have a pageant, things like that. Well, and you really can't blame a businessman for wanting to make money. Right. I mean, that's sort of, of the idea. But um, were there people like uh, Sen in other states then? I mean, he seemed to operate mostly in South Dakota. Yes, and there were others because there were other Final Proof people, uh, Final Proof kings. I don't know their names, but I've heard reference to that he was not the only one. He just made his reputation initially that way. And just out of interest for your listeners, he eventually became more famous for settling in Deadwood, South Dakota, where there was a notorious gambling and prostitution problem, and he wanted to reform the town. So he spent a great deal of his energy in his final years trying to reform Deadwood, and Deadwood still being a, a place that's kind of, uh, embraces that history. I think he's kind of a little bit known in that area, or at least they have people who act as the reformers when they have these sort of, um, you know, historic, um, oh, I don't know, reenactments for tourists, or they kind of play up that part for tourists. And of course, the, you know, the the major interest I'm afraid is on the the Sen rather than El Sen. But <laughs> um, well, he, he became known for that ultimately. So it's it's since you mentioned where he ended up, is he buried then in that that there's a famous uh, cemetery in Deadwood that I I had went to before they started charging you to go into it. Is is no, he well, one of the people who's in there? That's a good question. You know, he did spend the end of his career there. I suppose he might be, but I don't know. Okay. Well, that was an unprompted prompted question, so that's <laughs> not quite fair. Okay. How did Carrie come to work for Sun? Well, we don't know for sure, but she was working for the Arlington Sun in Arlington, which was near Dismet, and she left there after two months and then resurfaced in the Pedro Bugle, which is across the state near Top Bar and near Phillip, and her, her um, homestead had been in um, – Phillip. The top bar, Philip area. Sometimes they say top bar, sometimes they say Philip. But they were all in those areas, and they were just that was just a little bit too far away from Pedro for her to have probably lived in the uh, on the homestead and commuted. But it was very close, and it's possible he met her there, or possible he was just coming through on the train. And I believe I've just worked out as a puzzle that. Um, he looked for women to run his papers and homesteaders, women homesteaders, because he, of course, he wanted experienced um, typesetters, experienced women who were not afraid of work. But I noticed that, you know, women homesteaders in general would either have a, a husband or a hired hand to run the homestead, and they were kind of tied to that area because they had to live on their land for a certain number of months a year. Mm -hmm. So you kind of count on them to be there and that they probably wouldn't out be busting the sod themselves. I know some did, but that he could kind of count on them, and they were often looking for work so they could hire out a hired hand. And he just had a lot of women editors, and he apparently relied on them a great deal, and they apparently uh, were quite faithful uh, to him and you know, were quite good at what they did. And I believe he, where he met Carrie, I don't know, whether it was, 
in Pedro or in Arlington. But I believe he quickly recognized that she knew how to set type, she knew how to write, she could do a lot of things, and he seemed to put her in charge from then on of papers that were struggling. He would just send her on to the next paper, put her in charge, and let her do whatever needed to be done to either help the paper or to ultimately help it fold, you know, not to not to kill the paper in a way that was negative, but he did frequently close down papers. So she was not afraid to go to these struggling towns and do what she could to see the paper through to either more success or to, you know, let it go, come to its conclusion, which I thought was very brave, um, you know, and, and an interesting career because he did do that for her. He sent her frequently to towns like that. Hmm. Yeah, I, I did want to uh, mention that for Laura fans, if you are going to DeSmet, Arlington is on Highway 14, the Laura Ingalls Wilder Historic Highway, and the town is still there. So you can say as you drive through it next time that this is where Carrie worked on the paper. <laughs> uh, and I did a quick check on Find a Grave, and they didn't have E.L. Sun. They let me down. So I will have to oh, do a little work on that, too. <laughs> but, okay. So, um uh, let's see. What newspapers did, did Carrie work for then? Okay. Well, other than the ones she worked for around Desmet, which was the leader, and then it combined with the Desmet News to become the news and leader, she might have worked for the Kingsbury Independent, which was a rival, although that's just a maybe, and then the Arlington Sun. And those were all generally in the area of Desmet. But when she started working for Sen, she was across the state in a different part of the state and she worked for the Pedro Bugle which only there were only 16 people in Pedro at the time which shows you what a struggling really? town it was and she was one of them probably unless she commuted from her uh, homestead and um, she you know kept tried to keep that struggling paper going until Sin decided he needed a newspaper and Roseland took sent her to the Roseland Review, which I believe she may have founded. I don't know, but it didn't exist, and the next time we hear about it, she's in charge of it. And Roseland also is very far from the train station, a, a town likely to struggle, and a town needing a newspaper. Newspapers in that era for the frontier existed partially to boost the town and make it sound attractive and to make people know where the local you know, stores were, local dances, a local preacher, so that people would have more of the, you know, accoutrements of civilization. So that was probably the um, gist of her being hired there at another small town. And at some point, um, E.L. Sen then moved into mining country and discovered that mining newspapers were under the same um, situation as the Final proof papers that miners who were proving up on their mines also had to run these ads. So he sent her to the Keystone Recorder in Keystone, South Dakota, which Keystone had been and was still a boomtown, but was on a downswing. A lot of the mines had run out. You know, they were on a low ebb, and so the newspaper was somewhat probably struggling. And he decided, well, he was going to send Carrie there to do what she needed to do there because he was used to her taking over these struggling papers. And so she worked there for some time and, a, you know, rather brief time, but then he quickly sent her to the Hill City Star, which was nearby, another mining town. And at that point, she and her husband got together and she got married and and quit. <laughs> so um, he had her going through four different newspapers at that point. And she had already worked at four other ones. So... 
um, how many years then did she end up working in newspapers? That's really hard to pin down. We know that from the time she left um, high school, or left school, I don't know if they call it high school in that era, but uh, when she left school, she worked um, in newspapers very shortly after that. Then she was on and off in newspapers. We know she spent a great deal of time traveling and worked perhaps in places we don't even know about in Colorado and Wyoming because she lived or traveled there for her health for a lengthy time as they did back then and perhaps, you know, had a job. That's one speculation. But then came back and um, did some substitute teaching and whatnot, but got back into newspapers and worked until she turned 42. So more or less from the time she left school to the time she was 42. Uh, with some significant gaps that we don't know at this point what 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 she was doing. Hmm. So it sounds like there's still some room for for work on researching Carrie. Oh yeah, wouldn't it be nice to find where she was in Colorado or Wyoming to find out if she worked on a newspaper or something, taught school, who knows, or mm-hmm. was just living a leisure life. I mean, maybe she had saved money and was at a spa. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, I uh, was um, you mentioned her homestead and proving it up and coming in there. So was she homesteading at the same time as she worked on the newspapers? I didn't think she was because I, she seemed to have been not working at the Pedro Bugle and had returned from her homestead to take a job at the Arlington Sun. And yet the fact that she was hired after that immediately at the Pedro Bugle makes me wonder if she was was Pedro would have been a more thriving town while she was homesteading, possibly slightly more thriving than 16 people. And, you know, it's possible she had something to do with it. And I've I've scratched my head over that one because it didn't seem as though she was, but that might have been why she knew E.L. Sen. Um, You know, he might have found out that she was a typesetter and said, hey, come on. But we, I really haven't been able to find that out. That would be another thing to find out. It would be really terrific to know. So do we know um, she, she, her husband, David Swainsey, was a mine owner. Do we know if it was through the newspaper that Carrie met her husband or was it just, you think, um, or do we not know how she, she met him? I think she must have first become introduced to him through the paper. Of course, you know, you could you know, know him from church or a mutual friend, but he did place mining ads for the mines that he was, for want of a better word, proving up on his mines the same way the final proofs were. And he would have had to come in and pay for the ads and set the ads and whatnot. And probably she was the one he would deal with because I'm not so sure there wasn't but one person in that office. So almost for certain um, they would have met that way. Uh, his wife had died shortly before Carrie came to town, and he had small children, and apparently the young son was ill. And I've heard that he asked Carrie either to take care of the son or for tips on taking care of him. But if you think about it, she was a single woman with no children. So it seems to me, although he probably was concerned with the son's health and did need a woman's touch, he probably would have gone to a married woman with children <laughs> who knew about that, and I think he must have been flirting with her because why would he have picked a single woman who knew nothing about children, um, you know, except for that he liked her and thought she was a, a person that was caring and compassionate or something. You know, I think he must have gotten to know her somehow, and it's possible it was, you know, some other way, but it's almost certain he was in the newspaper to meet her, you know, and met her that way. 
So uh, your information about Cary is used on the Keystone Area Historical Society's uh, webpage about Cary uh, because she was a longtime resident there. How did you get connected with them? I've been trying to remember. I know somebody <laughs> suggested I talk to them, and I was first emailed with a, a man there, and he mentioned that I should speak to Betty Jo Sagdalen, who works there, and so I emailed Betty Jo, and she and I just, hit it off. You know, my parents were traveling through South Dakota shortly thereafter, and she insisted they come by the museum, and she gave them a personal tour, and, oh, they just thought she was wonderful, and started exchanging Christmas cards, that kind of thing. And so Betty Jo and her husband last year were in Florida on a vacation and came up through Birmingham, and so we got to meet them. And someday I'm going to go see her um, her museum, but she um, worked out a lot of um, interesting connections with me through the museum, a lot of correspondence with me, with things she knew, and she got me in touch with Carrie's step-granddaughter, who um, was very elderly and had some health troubles at that time, but she had the um, step-granddaughter answered a list of questions for me, and then she passed away a couple weeks later, so I was very, very fortunate that Betty Jo set that up and, you know, really oh, yes. uh, grateful for it. And you know it was real interesting. So uh, it was. I don't remember how I met Betty Joe, but it seemed like it seems like I've known her forever. <laughs> you know, ever after that. So uh, what's next on your Carrie research? What else would you like to find out about her? Well, gosh, now that we've been talking, I'm just wanting to know what she did in Colorado and Wyoming. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I would really love to find some of her old newspapers that people think don't exist. And that's real. You know, chance you're lucky. Somebody will find a, a bound set in a library or a attic, and you know who knows. That would be really nice, um, and that's real chancy. I'm not likely to be able to spend the time on it right now. However, uh, you know, I keep wishing, <laughs> wishing that would happen. Um, I'm also interested in Laura's time here in the South when she lived in Florida. And to be honest, I'm really interested in the idea that she spent most of her time in Geneva, Alabama, because her descendants or Cousin Peter's descendants in this area say, oh, no doubt, they went to town in Geneva. And since Geneva's in Alabama and I'm in Alabama, that's a great goal, too, to go in a different direction and find out about the uh, the Wilders in the South. Okay. What's something you think that's interesting about Carrie that you, that people mostly don't know? Oh, gosh. You know, I think most people don't think about Carrie's being anything other than the, the sickly or slightly sickly little sister, and they don't know that she, you know, was a a busy career woman and got married at 42. I, You know, I think that's kind of uh, interesting, and, and, you know, you think of people back then marrying at age 18, and, you know, she probably didn't see marriage in her future, had to have a career and got one, you know, and yet she wound up getting married at 42, and I thought that was just really charming and, um, oh, illustrative of the the you know broad range of the experience uh, in in history that you know we picture people in that era as following a get out of school, get married, have children pattern, and she was just completely different. She was kind of a maverick, and um, you know, it seemed to enjoy her career and enjoy being mother to Swansea's two children. She was really their stepmother, but, you know, she seemed to enjoy that. And they're the only ones, I believe, that, you know, the children, the descendants are still around. Uh, you know, I think there's still some descendants of the, the Swansea children around, which I think is interesting as well. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, now we have been talking away here, and we've got just about well, we've we've got a little over five minutes left. So, uh, I, if we had time, we wanted to talk about just a little bit about um, some of the other projects that that you have. You've written a couple of books not on Carrie Ingalls. Uh, would you like to just share briefly about them? Sure, thanks. Um, uh, the book I have already published is about the Wright Brothers' time in Alabama, just like Laura. I think <laughs> people that was, are surprised who spent time in Alabama. Um, the Wright Brothers had the first civilian flying school in the nation in Montgomery, Alabama in 1910, and they flew the first night flights in history there, in world history. And it was a very entertaining, uh, kind of almost funny story of how the city tried to turn that um, flight school into publicity for uh, the city and how the Wright Brothers resisted. But in the end, everybody was happy. And then I'm shortly about to publish in January a book called A Rare Titanic Family, which is about my great uncle, Albert Caldwell, who was on the Titanic and survived. He was 26 at the time, and his wife and baby also survived with him. And they're one of the few families to survive intact, and that's why the title is A Rare Titanic Family. And I've been working real hard on that, and it's going through the sort of last-minute, last stages process of, you know, a whirlwind of editing and a whirlwind of promotions and so on. And so that's been really fun and taking up a lot of time and energy and excitement. And uh, so that's my current project, and we're just uh, I'm looking forward to promoting that book and uh, traveling all around as well to talk about it. Well, and I think those are both really interesting topics, and I think we're going to have to have you come back to talk about about. Uh, the Wright Brothers, because that's um, it's a thing that we have interest. Uh, I'm interested in because while most people, you know, associate the Wright Brothers with Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, and with um, Ohio, Dayton, Ohio, and then of course their actual shop, or at least one of them, is now in Henry Ford in Michigan. But they actually lived lots of places because their their father was a minister and kept getting trans around while they were growing up, and one of the places that they lived was Cedar Rapids, Iowa, which is I didn't right know that. down the road from me. <laughs> oh, how about that? Yeah, well, there, there you go. <laughs> so I think it's interesting, and it's it's interesting about the Titanic too, because it really that's actually it was a Titanic story that um, got me going on the Laura Letters project because uh, one of the the men who who'd been a baker in the Titanic had a collection of stuff that he gathered up from other survivors and things over the years. And when he died, nobody understood what this stuff was, so they just threw it out. No. Oh, my gosh. Oh, what a nightmare. And that's what started the Titanic Historical Society. There's It doesn't have a real museum there, but it's it's like in the back of this guy's jewelry store because he was horrified when he found this out. Oh, yeah. And he started uh, the Titanic Historical Society that you can be a member of if you want to. They do a real nice newsletter. They've got a great mm-hmm. website. And um, because of that, I was like, well, that's happening to the Laura Ingalls Wilder letters, so we have to get them saved. Oh, wow. I'm glad can. the Titanic expi- inspired that. <laughs> yeah. So so, so far, I've saved, I've, um, saved 24 letters. So oh, that's we're, great. Oh, congratulations. That's yeah. terrific. So I'm interested in both those subjects. We'll probably have to come have you back on. But I was oh, I'll be was, happy to talk about them. <laughs> so I was glad to have you come on though and talk about uh, Carrie because I do think Laura's sisters sort of um, 
get dropped out of the mix a little bit. And I think especially Laura's relationship to Carrie is, I think, kind of important to understanding her. Not as quite so much Grace, because I always think of Laura and Grace kind of like Loretta Lynn and Crystal Gale. There was <laughs> there was so much of an age difference between them. Right. It wasn't it wasn't like she really knew her as a person. She was just, you know, the baby. But Carrie was close enough that especially after Mary went blind and and left home, Laura and Carrie did things together. Yes, and they I, did. And, uh, you know, she was kind of more of a real sister, the way you think of having a sister relationship. So I always think that uh, it's too bad when when people don't quite count, uh, you know, Carrie. So I'm glad we could talk about that. And although not to, to, to discount Grace, because, of course, Grace was the Ingalls born in Iowa, and everybody knows all the best people are born in Iowa. Well, and, you know, my Titanic <laughs> uncle was born in Iowa as well. <laughs> yeah, she is. It's just quality people all around here. <laughs> so <laughs> that's our little claim on the Ingalls family anyway. So well, that's great. <laughs> uh, we're about out of time. So thank you again for coming on, Julie. Well, thank you. I, it was really fun. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And I'm going to stick you back in the green room, but... Um, I'm not going to bring you back out of it again. So uh, I just want to take a minute and tell everybody, remind you that once again, the next episode of Trundle Bed Tales Radio is going to be on this Friday, November 25th. It's going to be at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Central Time, 9 a.m. Mountain Time, 8 p.m. Pacific Time. Uh, So it's going to be in the morning instead of at night this time. Uh, and that you can either listen in or check back later. And if you want to call in, either to ask a question or to just listen while you're out driving around from one Black Friday sale to the next, you can do that at 714-242-5253. That's 714-242-5253. Or toll free one eight seven seven. Six three three nine three eight nine. That's one eight seven seven six three three nine three eight nine. And I hope that uh, we will actually catch you again then. I think this is going to be a really interesting episode. Uh, we're going to do a sort of a quick roundup for December. I'm not exactly sure when. I don't have it scheduled yet. And uh, then. I haven't quite decided, but I'm kind of leaning towards doing uh, maybe just because December is such a busy month. I hate to try and grab anybody else uh, for an interview, so I may end up doing two two uh, sessions that are just me talking. And if we do that, we'll do a year-end roundup, uh, and then the other topic that I'm considering talking about is where the Ingalls Wilder graves are, so where you can find it if you want to visit their graves. So uh, if, as always, if you have any input on the topics you'd like here on Trundle Bed Tales Radio, let me know. And please share it with your friends. We really uh, always like to have more people listening and reporting back and sharing ideas. So uh, please do tell all your friends about us. And with that, I think we will go ahead and end the episode. Good night.